So on this podcast, I'm joined again by Tim Boson. Tim uh, is an anthropologist. And Tim, what a fascinating time this is for anthropologists. I should say, by the way, that we're recording this in the fourth week of UK lockdown uh, for COVID-19. Tim and I are in different locations and we're using some amazing technology to uh, be able to talk to each other and record this. Tim, hello. Good morning, Nick. It, It is an amazing, amazing time, isn't it? We live in. Yes, I mean horrendous, but also very interesting in in some ways, and we'll we'll touch on that today. So, from an anthropology point of view, um, what what do you think anthropologists will look back and learn from at least what we know so far, the last sort of four to six weeks? Well, I suppose there are various elements of human behaviour we'll look at. I mean, I guess on the the sort of international scale, there will be some disappointment that there hasn't been more cooperation and a more united way of dealing with it. And, of course, the World Health Organization is in trouble. Trump is withdrawing his funding and so on. Uh, So from that perspective, people will say, what a shame, and we should in the future be able to have a more united approach to something like a pandemic. Do you think, going into that a little bit, um, what do you think has driven, we're very early stages in a weird sort of way, this feels like ages into it to us right now, but I'm sure we'll look back and realise we're very early stages in the whole story of COVID-19. What do you think has driven that kind of um, nation first um, approach to to the the so far mostly not cooperating there's some cooperation but mostly not cooperating and competing with each other for equipment and um, vaccines and and so on well nationalism has quite a lot of advantages for the human species but it also has a lot of disadvantages because it's basically based on a form of tribalism and tribalism uh, and it you know, often used in this negative com- uh, connotation is very competitive. So different nations have taken different approaches on the basis of their culture and their perspective. If you start with China, where the outbreak seems to have started in Wuhan, maybe and probably now that we've looked at the DNA, passed on from a bat to a pangolin to a human being and so on, the evidence now suggests, and it's sort of leaking out slowly, that the Chinese authorities knew this a long time before, back in the autumn of 2019. But given their ideological state, nothing ever happens that goes wrong in communist China. They didn't take precautions then, and the world only started knowing about it after Christmas. So you could say that was a form of tribalism where the Chinese don't want to lose face don't want to be seen as a a nation which get things wrong, and therefore they didn't let the rest of the world know early enough. So so you say that tribalism has, you know, is is sort of ingrained in us. Why is that? And what what are the advantages of of tribalism? Right. Well, if you if you see evolution, we're 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 going back here to origin of species in a sense. If we see evolution as a competition. Uh, we're competing for survival. The microbes are competing with us. For example, this virus is competing with us. It can adapt much more quickly than we can, but nevertheless, we will adapt. And it's an ongoing battle. And if you see that also within the species, competition between groups, originally family groups, extending to extended family groups, then this is the origin of tribalism. We are in competition for resources and for survival. 
And it's driven not consciously by us, but driven very often by our genes that want to survive and reproduce, pass on to the next generation. So if you see life as a constant competition, which I know some people will be worried about, but it's there, then tribalism has its origin in that. And we, we compete to survive. And you could see it even, even at a family level. Let's talk about sibling rivalry. <laughs> what is that all about? But trying to survive and get more of the resources, whether it's your parents' attention or whatever it is, uh, you're in competition. So as a human species, any species, we're always in competition. And it could be, as I say, with uh, fellow members of the species, it could be with other species, or it could even be with the dreadful world of microbiology and viruses. So coming back to the World Health Organization for a moment then, or thinking back to the forming of the United Nations even, were, were they really basically futile attempts to, to, to plaster over what is base, a basic human drive to, to compete? And uh, do, do you think those sort of things can't really ever work because of the way we're genetically programmed? Well, it's the, it's the nature-nurture argument, isn't it? And we've, we've developed as a species to be able to impose culture on nature. And we're often able to override uh, a natural instinct. Times of crisis, the natural instinct tends to work faster and quicker. So panic buying is a really good example of that. Rationally, everybody must have realized that if they rush out and buy stuff, there's going to be a shortage. And then, in a sense, that fuels more panic buying because you don't want to be left out. Now, that was an irrational response to a particular crisis. Now, some people might say, well, wait a minute, there's a bit of rationality in it because, of course, you want to get your hands on supplies for your family and not for another family. But actually, it's almost an automatic response. Fight and flight are the main automatic responses that human species, whatever situation they're put in, they react to immediately. And it's only later that the rational part kicks in. And we've got a constant, I don't want to exaggerate it, but it is a constant conflict in a way between some elements of wanting to survive and putting ourselves first and then being rational and understanding that actually that isn't necessarily the right way to go. If we cooperate, we can do things better. And and does that that, that takes a, a kind of a, quite a big leap then, doesn't it? I mean, if we wind the clock back to before COVID and, and talk about, uh, areas of of cooperation in the world, like the United Nations, for example, with all its imperfections, uh, how how do you get um, uh, some? Uh, how do you get human beings to to some extent park tribalism to to, to the great to be for the greater good? How, how does that happen? Well, I think the the, the processes are obviously uh, about winning arguments, and winning arguments are usually based on education and understanding. So the more you can understand why you behave the way you do and why other people behave the way they do, and you can try and come to a rational process which gets you to a better answer than the instinctive, selfish one, then that's the way forward. So education, I think, underlies this, that people need to understand other cultures, how they work, how they operate, need to understand and have empathy with how other individuals operate and that gives you a broader perspective than your rather more narrow selfish one do you think that can that sort of thing can happen in what is an emergency a global emergency or, or is it just that we we are programmed to kind of revert to type and that is our our kind of emergency response is 
I don't want to put it quite like this, but go into our shell, do do things for ourselves. Is that is that just not possible to override in a situation like the one we find ourselves in now? Well, I don't think it's one or the one or the other. It's in the end, it's trying to get that that com- compromise. The instinctive reaction is often very selfish because that's what you're programmed to do: survive, so you can reproduce for the next generation, and that will work at an individual level, a family level. Uh, a local tribal level, and then a nationalist level. So when threatened, uh, societies tend to look a- around, in a sense, for, for those who are causing the threat or the enemy. And you can see that, in, well, just take it basically with something like immigration. When something's not going right in a society, who, who do we blame? It's not us. It's not our fault. It's the other, because we don't fully understand the other, and we see them in some way or other imposing on our culture. So to go back to your question away to how we can get it to work, it has to be that sort of compromise. And the United Nations does a lot of good things at certain areas. But when you get to the, the top table, the Security Council, and you've got big nations competing with each other, what tends to happen now, because uh, the West is often proposing compromises, is you will get Russia, China vetoing. And so the United Nations gets stalled and it can't move forward. So the national interests then collide. And they often collide, as we know, politically because of different ideological approaches to the world. So our approach may be we'd like to think very democratic, very inclusive. Someone like uh, Putin will be wanting to keep Russia as a world power and he will do what he can do to make that happen. Uh, and Syria is a perfect example of where that's playing out amongst the nations. And if we were making this podcast a couple of months ago, which was our original plan, I think, um, we might have been talking about um, uh, football and the, the tribalism. There. Is that the same kind of thing, the, the sort of sports team uh, fanatical following? Is that the same kind of thing? Does it come from the same roots, if you like? Yes, I think it does. And and football and sport generally, and you may remember I mentioned I was advocating it in our last podcast because it takes that antagonism and that hostility and puts it in a very controlled context, uh, kicking a ball about or whatever it is. So there's that competition. We're acting in, innately with our, but we've controlled it so that it generally doesn't lead to <laughs> violence. I'm laughing because, of course, sometimes it does lead to violence. And we know, you know, sometimes football fans take it to the element that they see opposing fans as enemies who they want to crush. <laughs> and they revert to, to violence. And I on guess the then they can take it. Sorry. And I get, that's all right. No, I, I guess yeah. then they can take it outside of the rules that we've set down. And, you know, once you're outside of the rules, outside the football ground, um, you know, we saw that perhaps in more in the 70s and so on. But, but you know, outside the football ground, those rivalries can continue somewhat without rules or at least with looser rules. Yes, you're, you're right. And what happens, of course, uh, those breaking out of the rules is often stimulated by something which is uh, not actually within your control. It might be alcohol, it might be drugs. I mean, if you look at the statistics in terms of crime, there's so much crime committed now when people have been taking some other substance. It might be alcohol, it might be drugs, because they've lost control and therefore the rules are out the window. The rules of culture, civilization, and it's me, 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 and this is what I want. And it's very instinctive behavior to grab what you want. 
not to think of the other person, not to have empathy for the person you're actually uh, committing something against. Now, back to the COVID thing, though. So here's an interesting thing. We might have thought four weeks ago when the government was mulling the possibility of uh, introducing a fairly strict lockdown, we might have thought, well, it's not going to work, is it? Because everybody's going to be out for themselves um, and they won't stay at home. And, you know, they, they will continue to do the things that they feel they need to do or which they need to do to get food or whatever it is. Um but that hasn't really happened, has it? Why is that? It's very interesting, isn't it? Democracies have huge problems with getting united action. They need a real crisis in which for, for people to comply. It's you know much easier, and I'm, I'm generalising it, but it's much easier for a totalitarian state like China to impose rules because the culture's used to it <laughs> and people yes. obey. In a democratic society... Particularly, if you let's take the UK for example, we've we've just been split almost down the middle by a huge debate over Brexit. So we know that the people have different views and they can be fueled and they can be quite determined. We've set ourselves within certain rules of the constitution and how we operate parliamentary democracy to do things. But even if you're government, you know that they're going to be your backbenchers who are not going to agree with you, and you've got that constant dialogue argument going on. And to get people to agree to do the same thing in a democracy is extremely difficult. And it has to be a real emergency, a real outside crisis. It could be war, or in this particular case, the pandemic. And it's remarkable how many people, and the surveys now demonstrate how many people are agreeing with the lockdown, even if politically they don't agree with this government. They're doing it because the greater good of the nation, the greater good of society, is demonstrated by obeying the rules. Now, there'll always be people on the fringe who won't do it. And of course, the media will be showing us pictures of people who are socialising or breaking the rules. But generally, the nation has responded. Yes, we've got a crisis. Yes, we must do as we're told. And that is is the strength of a democracy. And it's won by argument. It's not by, you must do this. We're not telling you why. You must do this. This is the reason why. And if sometimes the government's message message is a bit confused, then that creates problems because the message must be quite clear. This is for your advantage and everybody else's advantage. And so far that seems to have worked. As time goes on and, you know, governments get questioned more inevitably once there's the the time to think about the questions um, do, do you think that's that that's sustainable do you think that in democracies um, we can continue to ask people backed up by the law but not in a heavy-handed way to do certain things do you, do you think that that um, how do you how do you make sure that there's still that kind of consensus? I think one of the interesting things at the moment is that the, the surveys seem to show that people are very much not in favour of relaxing um, the lockdown. Um, but as time goes on, that might change, mightn't it? And, and then what do you do as a government? Well, that's that again goes back to making sure that what is happening is open and people can understand the arguments. If they can understand the arguments, then they will comply. And it's about goes back to what I was saying about people having enough education, having access to information, the data being quite clear. And as long as people see more cases and the death rate going up, then there will be concern. Now, I'm sure the government and the civil service are very worried 
Because what's going to happen now, and we're seeing it already, is there are going to be fewer cases of COVID-19 going into hospital and the death toll is going to start going down. And what they will be concerned about is people will say, well, you know, it's over. We're winning. And they will start relaxing the rules and then there's a danger of a second wave. So the challenge now for anybody in authority in any democratic country is how to deal with actually getting out of lockdown, how to deal with not creating a second crisis. So they've got to manage it very carefully, being totally open, but at the same time persuading people, yes, we're winning, but you mustn't ease up on the lockdown and the social distancing and the self-isolation. You've got to keep that going so that we don't have a second wave. And that's going to be a very tricky argument to win because people are getting very fed up with being locked down. The ang we mentioned the anxiety levels are going up. People are getting frustrated. And we've got some fantastically good weather, which is encouraging people to go out. So it's, it's a, a really interesting and dynamic argument. And of course, we won't know how successful it was until we have some hindsight in the future. Yes, I wonder if we'll listen back to this podcast in a couple of years' time and think, well, that was all wrong. And it probably will be. <laughs> I mean, it's almost certainly predictions are almost always wrong. But but it it's um it is a it is a difficult time. But let's let's just we've been, I I don't know, perhaps I feel as though I've been a bit damning of tribalism, but it's built into us. But let's just let's just sort of round off with um give us some examples of where tribalism really works what what you know how it how it really benefits us as a as a species and and you know it's it's that survival thing understood but but give us a few examples well it's very interesting i mean if we take it at a, at a big level one of the interesting debates has always been about for example how western culture has been so successful and there is an american geographer called jared diamond who wrote a very interesting book about guns steel and germs where he demonstrated that European competition, competition between tribes, because it wasn't even necessarily at that time nations. Uh, for example, if we took Germany, it wasn't united. There were different mm. groups there. That competition stimulated ideas and stimulated technology and stimulated what we would call in inverted commas the advancement of the human species. And it was so successful, we were able to spread it across the world. So that is an example of where we can take the human species forward. Of course, some things are not very nice. So a lot of technological advances have been made through war by developing new weapons. And then the spin-off from that, of course, has created other things. I mean, the most obvious example is space travel. Uh, it was based on German missiles, V1 and V2, uh, by that f famous engineer von Braun, who went to America, and that stimulated space travel. Um, but it's that competition that stimulates. So tribalism can create something that's very helpful to us, which is competition. It can also, of course, bring people together and it can create empathy. Within our tribe, we can be very empathetic and sympathetic. For example, I'll go back to Captain Tom, people donating to the NHS because we want the NHS to succeed. And there are people. We know those people, the doctors, the nurses, all the healthcare workers, they're part of us. We're all, and that's a one nation idea. So tribalism can create tremendous feelings of unity where it's not so successful, as we say, as in the, the broader spectrum. And sometimes even in the narrow spectrum, <laughs> go back to examples like panic buying and so on. So there's a lot to be good to, uh, in tribalism, which creates cooperation and understanding and enables us to move above those rather primitive instincts of just helping ourselves.
And perhaps it might be the commercial competition, which comes from tribalism, really, doesn't it? And perhaps it might be that that, that also stimulates um, things like finding treatments, finding vaccines, ultimately um, finding ways to deal with this. It may be that commercial competition has its part to play in that as well. And I guess that's also tribalism. Companies could be seen as tribes. That's absolutely true. And what's happening now? You know, different countries are racing to find a vaccine. And what's driving them isn't just... Yes, we want, to, we want a vaccine to save the human race from this pandemic. What's driving them is my lab here in the UK, at Cambridge or wherever, is going to beat that lab at, at, uh, uh, in the United States at Harvard or, or MIT or wherever that lab's operating. So that element of competition we have is in our own lives, don't we? And it starts, as I say, we go back to siblings. I'm going to do better than my brother and my sister or whatever. And so it drives us on. So competition isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I mentioned that I think it was in the last podcast, the idea that you can suppress these things is wrong. You have to go with them and you try and manage them so that to everybody's advantage. It's not that you say competition is bad. We can't have competition. You say competition's there. Let's see how it can benefit us all. And that's the way forward. And I think certainly in terms of finding a vaccine, trying to deal with this pandemic, competition will be very, very helpful. Tim, that's a lovely way to end, actually, because it tells us that whilst it looks like um, some of our instincts are perhaps working against us right now, um, they might ultimately yield some, some positive outcomes in what is a pretty horrible situation right now tim thank you so much for joining us on this podcast we're going to do another one very soon i just know it thanks very much for having me again nick it's been a pleasure